Hey, this is Karen, Coach's Corner Chats, and on the episode today, I have Steve Rollins. Steve, where are you at, and what are you up to? So I'm out in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, uh, which is halfway in between New York City and Philadelphia, for those who aren't that familiar with uh, this part of the East Coast. And right now, from a coaching standpoint, I'm running supplemental training. I have about 50 kids. Um, we practice several times a week probably around 20-ish or so at a time. Um, and I do that because around a decade ago, I got away from coaching teams when my kids started playing. So, you know, my wife had the come to Jesus moment with me when she said, do you want to go coach other kids, people's kids, or do you want to watch your kids play? And uh, so for the last decade or so, I've been really in the supplemental space, not doing a lot of teams, basically because I need my weekends open to do my own kids stuff. What is what is entailed within a supplemental and how do you like get those kids to come to you and what have you? So so it's completely word of mouth, right? So I do it completely free. Right? We we I don't charge the kids a dime. They come, they they don't come. That's completely up to them. The only thing that I generally ask because I do, you know, my planning and stuff is that they just let me know if they're going to the show. Um and then it's just word of mouth. It's like who heard about this or who heard about that and their friends and their teammates. And so I have kids probably from, well, definitely from the seven top clubs in the area. So that's, I have kids who play MLS next, who come for supplemental. I have kids that play ECNL. I have kids that play GA. Um, and, and those are the kids who generally show up. I have a couple of local town kids too. Uh, but for the most part, they're, they're, you know, what we would say, you know, more elite league kids. And uh, I think that has to do with just, you know, the kids who have the mindset to go out there and get a two extra hours in several times a week are the ones who are, you know, better in their career and their own journeys. How did you get such a, like a high level of, of player? Cause when I heard it, I was thinking, Oh, this might be just kind of more of a wreck thing, but it sounds like these are some high level, like, kids that may be going to college or may have aspirations of going to the MLS or, or something larger? Yeah. So I would say over 90% of the kids I have um, are going to play college ball, right? You know, I, I'm forecasting out a couple of years. Those who have been through there have, have already reached that stage, but it's about 90% will play college ball. Um, I had a lot of professionals when I used to coach over in Europe, um, but none since I've been here in the U S so I was going to ask, so you talked about like kind of making a fork in the road when your kids, when your wife came to you and said, Hey, do you want to watch the kids or whatever? What, what was, what's your coaching kind of beginnings? Where did you start getting into starting? Well, let's start off. Were you a player uh, back when you were in your youth? Yeah. So, so, so I played in my youth. I played, you know, you know, back in the seventies, this was when like state teams and ODP teams were big. So I played in all that. I got an opportunity to play at the Ajax Academy for a few years. And so I did that. And then uh, I, I came back to the States and kind of lost the, the soccer way. You know, when you're dismissed, you know, when this was your dream and you're going to make all these big things and you're a kid and you get dismissed, um, it was rough. So I actually fenced for a while and, you know, I uh, was a division one fencer, you know, went to college on a full ride, you know, didn't pay a dime for school. Um, and then got back into coaching probably late twenties, early thirties. So, you know, several decades ago, and, um, I was able to contact a bunch of my friends who had gone through a lot of the academies in Europe and stuff, and they were able to hook me up. And so I went and got my UEFA licenses. I, I topped out as a B as an A, you kind of have to be coaching full time. Um, and from then for, let's say the last 15, 20 years, um, I'm fortunate that my daytime job, I was based in Europe. So I would go to the local academy, you know, where I had friends, you know, whether that be in the Netherlands or Spain or wherever I was and say, hey, look, I'm going to be here for a month. You know, can I assist on one of the U12, U14 teams? And, you know, since I wasn't looking at it as, you know, a way to make money, it was always free to them. So, you know, somebody to pick up the cones and stuff, they were more than happy to let me do that. And so that's really where I started. And then I, you know, became more into, you know, 
I was one of the assistants with the U12s or the U14s. Uh, I did do U16s for a club in Spain and stuff, but it was always an assistant role uh, in Europe. I never, because I always came home on the weekends, I never was there for many of the games. So how did, how is it that, so it sounds like you have a lot of like overseas experience. What was the, how did you even get to the point where you got to even experience the IX Academy? So, so, so as a player, I don't know how it happened. Like I was 13, you know, I just, you know, remember being sat down at the kitchen table one day and saying, Hey, look, you, you have this chance. Um, do, do you want to go play? I know, it was somehow done through U.S. soccer, right? We didn't have in the '70s academies here, mm-hmm. and you know whatever pawns were moved here and there, it was an opportunity I got. Um, I like to say I wasn't very good. I got a water for a lot of good players, um, but I was fast, so I could get it to them quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my uh, that was my stint there. And then you know on the coaching side, you know there were people that I knew, you know, in in the Netherlands and stuff from when I was a kid, and I just called them up and I said, "Hey, look, I want to get into coaching. Can you help me?" And they said, "Sure." I think that's so cool because I'm hearing that more and more as I talk to coaches. Is how many um, coaches when you reach out to them are like, "Yeah, come on over." Um, and like you said, even maybe for a month or just for a stint, um, everyone's always willing to kind of help. What are some of the things that now that you've you had that experience over over in Europe and being here in the States, what are some of the things? Are there are there differences in coaching styles? What do you see as as differences or maybe similarities in the two? So I think a lot of the differences in coaching styles has to do with um, revenue streams. Right. So, you know, when, when I'm coaching in, in Europe or working with coaches in Europe who, you know, make a living out of this. They're not judged on how many U12 trophies they put on a, on a shelf. They're judged by how many of their U12 skip U14s and go straight to U16, right? Because the clubs make their money on selling the 16 to 20 year olds. That's where they make their money. The, the, The parents part is, you know, insignificant. I mean, it's basically what we pay in the States for uniforms. Um, so, you know, all those clubs are really focused on developing a kid. So between 16 and 20, they're able to be sold to a bigger professional organization here, you know, and through no fault of of generally the coaches, right. Their income or their livelihoods are based upon how many parents they can keep happy to sign up for next year. Right. And what do you keep parents happy with by putting a trophy on the mantle case? So when they have their Christmas party, they can tell all their friends that little Susie won X, Y and Z super elite premium tournament last year. And isn't she great? She's going to be a superstar. You know, the next uh, Mia Hamm. I am dating myself, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I guess, you know, next Carly Lloyd or whoever is the, the one nowadays. And so the focus is really different. You know, I have a. I have a lot of coaches who I respect a lot who, who work in like the ECNL field uh, and they know their kids can't play. They know they can't, you know, kick a ball with both feet at 15, 16 years old, but it doesn't matter to them because that's not what they're charged to do, right? They're charged to go out there and win a game. And how do you win a game against 14 and 15 year olds? You put a lot of pressure on them. You got to make a mistake. And so they look for kids who are, you know, overly athletic, you know, and overly, I don't mean like freakishly, I mean like on the athletic side of the, the average kid. And if I can put, you know, 15 kids on a field, 16 kids on a field who can outrun everybody else, I'll win the majority of my youth games. And if that's what I want to do, it doesn't, it's not a difficult thing to do. You know, I used to tell people, you know, when I was coaching, you know, teams here in the States, that if I wanted to win a U11 game, I could do it. Right. If that was the most important thing to me, I could do it. Right. We all know what it is. You put your biggest kid in the back and kick the ball the furthest. You put your fastest kid up front and, and, and you just launch it 30 times a game. They'll hook up two or three times. You'll win most of your games. I mean, it, it's it's not a recipe that everybody doesn't know. Um, but what happens is, is now you have a kid who's not comfortable on the ball in the back. Right. So at 16, they're they're pretty much useless to 
you know, the higher end leagues and, you know, at 17, 18 in the college game, you have a kid up front who probably only knows how to use speed, can't hold up the ball, can only go in the direction of their dominant foot. Um, and, and, but that's not what the game here requires, right? The game here requires that you win the games. So you, the club can advertise that they're wonderful. That, it's an interesting take, and I, I completely see what you're talking about in terms of at the other clubs. So you always see it all the time that there are smaller clubs like Sevilla and Dortmund who have constantly just been giving, not giving away, they're making tons of money, but they are bringing those kids up and then selling them off and then making more money and then just keeps re- reproducing, um, which I love because it causes that like competitiveness um, within the the players to keep getting better. Whereas like you're saying on the, on the, here in the U S it's so much dictated almost by parent involvement, less about the, the player development. What about on the coaching side? What was the going through like the UEFA courses? Um, what were some of the things that you picked up there that you feel are a little bit, is it similar kind of differences there as well? So I, I did them a while ago, so I, I can't really speak to how they are today, right? I've, I've had them for over a decade. Um, but what I would say is that the understanding of the game and to relay that onto the kids was much more of a focus than what I've done here in the U.S. And I've stopped taking U.S. badges basically because I felt I was being hypocritical, right? I didn't want to tell anybody, oh, I'm a you know, USSFC or B or whatever the, the badge is, but I don't believe in anything that they teach, so I'm not going to... I'm not going to do that. Um, so I, 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 I stopped that for that reason. Um, I understand why coaches do it, right? If you need to do it for your livelihood, I, I get it, right? I don't think that for me, it was, I don't believe in that method. And so I'm not going to go out there and promote that I have that license. The main difference is, is in Europe, in the coaching, you coach different things at different levels but you always coach it with the end in mind where in the U S a lot of times you coach it for the short term in mind. And I give an example. So if you're talking about eight-year-olds and they're dribbling around cones, okay, you are going to get your eight-year-old to be able to have a little more confidence on the ball and stuff a little faster than if you had to have them dribble around live people as opposed to dead people, I guess, but live people, let's go with that. <laughs> um, in Europe, they don't, they don't care as much, right? Because they don't care whether it takes them to U12 or U14 to become comfortable on the ball because they're not going to sell them to 16 to 18. So the fact that they're a, you know, a head down dribbler who can do it really fast at 11 doesn't make a difference. And so... I had this, you know, when I was coaching here in the States, I was telling, you know, this always got me in trouble with the parents. I said, listen, I'm not teaching your kids how to be good at 10. I want to teach your kids how to be good at 16. Right. So anything that mother nature is going to take care of in the next eight years, you know, because they were eight, nine, 10 year old at the time, six, eight years. I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend time on. Right. So. You know, it has to do with like certain moves and stuff that you can get away with at eight years old that a, that a 16-year-old just takes you right off the field with. We, we didn't do any of those. You know, when we're talking about speed, you know, yes, there, there is a part in the game for speed, but mostly speed can be taken away with proper angles and stuff. An 11-year-old doesn't know that, but a 17-year-old does, right? So we're not going to hyper-focus on speed. And by speed, I mean speed of foot, not speed of play. Um, we're not going to hyper-focus on speed because at 17, you're either fast or you're not. And there's not a lot that a coach is going to do to make you faster. But if I can have you predict when to get into that space, which takes longer to do than just go run, that's going to help you at 17. We're just, you know, running with a parachute on your back at 11. I, I don't see has tremendous long-term value. I love the idea of it's almost like a game of patience. Like we're you're building for the long term, 
not for. So it sounds like even like with the supplemental group that you're working with, like I'm not looking at how well you do next season or the, I'm looking at when you get to the college level or if you go beyond, that's what we're building toward um, in terms of player development, which I think is really cool versus like you said, everything nowadays is so like one touch on a phone and I get the thing back. And I think that's something that we as a society are dealing with is I want it now. Um, and that's like you said, the chasing of trophies and the validation through that versus the ones that want to just keep putting the work in over the long haul. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask to go back to, to, to what you just said, because there's, there's something that, that I do that is directly relevant to that. So one of the things I do when I get a bunch of new kids is I tend to get the oldest and fastest and the youngest and slowest. Hmm. Right. And I'll say, I'm going to show you how having a high psych IQ and how understanding the game and the space and stuff has to do with it. So I make the fastest one face away from me and I have the slowest one face me. And I put them at like 10 to 15 yards away and I put my hand up. And as I'm talking, I say, whenever I lower my hand, run as fast as you can to me. And the slowest player always wins. Hmm. Right? Because by the time you recognize and put my hand down in a 10 to 15 yard sprint, the physical difference goes away. And that's what I try to to tell the parents and the kids that have me. Listen, for the most part, the physical differences are going to go away. You're physically better now because you're further along in the Tanner stages. But once you hit the end of it, there's nowhere where else to go. Everybody will eventually catch up. Right? There are very few kids who are fast at 10, aren't fast at 10 because they're further along in their maturation. Right? That's the majority of them, 80 to 90%. So if you don't teach them how to play, when everybody catches up physically, they're lost. The thing, the thing that I love too about that is, which I get into a lot of conversations with coaches, especially like in the off season, is a lot of push for like speed and agility and lifting weights and all that stuff. And I'm like on the other end of the spectrum where I'm like, I need my guys to play more because I feel like the more you play, then the soccer IQ side of things gets um, kind of more developed or gives them opportunities because it's fine to be able, like you said, I am the fastest person on the field, but if I am running in the wrong direction and don't see what's going on around me, I'm of no use to me on the field versus that one player who can actually see you with the hand up or with the ball at your foot. And I make myself available. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's all depending upon, you know, what your end goal is. Right. And, you know, I think, you know, especially in the in the youth soccer for the girls world, there is a a part for strength training and stuff, um, but it's a balance, right? I don't think teams should be taking team training time to go do strength training. I do believe that if you want to be a top end player, you need to sleep well, you need to eat well, you need to do your strength training. Um, but there's you know, what is that 10% of our population that, 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 that really wants to do that? And if they're not willing to do the extra on their own, no matter what you do as a coach, you're not going to get them there. Mm. So take your team time, work on the things that they can't do on their own. Those who want to do stuff on their own will excel. Those who don't, well, they are not going to go anywhere anyway. Right? It's a recreational sport for them then. That's so true. So true. Uh now, where where in the the soccer journey are your are your kids? And in terms of that, is there a chance that you do like once they've moved on and they're kind of into more independent? Do you go back into coaching and maybe look at creating opportunities that way as well? Yeah. So my kids, my daughter's U sixteen, my son's U fifteen. Um, so my daughter just started looking at colleges and stuff. Uh, my son's probably two years away, one because he's a year younger and one because boys start a year later. Um, so, so that's what it is. Uh, I have made a couple attempts to buy clubs here in, in, in around where I live, uh, but it's just such a, a cash flow thing 
for the people who own them now that it's it's difficult to get somebody to sit there and and give that up but you know that's that's my goal right i'm i'm looking to to purchase a club i'm looking to fund it in such a way that you know kids don't have to pay these exorbitant fees and you know that's that, that's my goal and i've i've already started that process i'd like to say i was further along in it but i'm not it's it's more difficult uh, to do than you would think. Um, maybe at some point in time, I'll give up the the thought of, hey, I I want to buy a club that already has, you know, eight hundred kids, a thousand kids, um, and and just start one on my own. Uh, but I'm not there yet. I'm I'm still hopeful to 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 get something that already exists and take a few years off my timeline. Would Would you want to streamline what whatever club that you may end up? Um, purchasing or developing or owning and set it up similar to the, like the academies overseas and be more of, of kind of end driven, like maybe change the mindset a little bit of what's going on in youth soccer. Yeah. So, so, so I'm fairly fortunate that, you know, I don't need to do this for a living. So I'm not looking to, uh, you know, make money out of this or anything. I, I look at it as a way, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like my community service. Um, so, so yeah, you know, I wanted to do what I'd like to do is having a niche organization for kids that want to play, you know, professional D1 ball, you know, depending upon, you know, where they fall. Um, that, that's, that, that's my goal. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get there sooner than later. With the, uh, with the supplemental type thing, um, how often is that, did you say? And um, is that something that you might, while you're waiting to do this, is that something you look at and maybe possibly grow that to be a little bit larger? So right now, um, it's several times a week. So we just got off Christmas break. So that was four times that week. Generally, it's two, maybe three times in the summer. I'll do three or four summer camps, which would be two weeks long, at like 10 sessions each. Um so it, it all has to do with how, how much time allows. You know, my big thing is, is, is to keep the cost down. You know, right now it's free. You know, and, I, and I'd like to target that number. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, people need to put bread on the table. I get it. But that goes into conflict with my free. <laughs> so... Um, so, so that's where I am. You know, it's, it's just the, the amount of resources. And, and the other thing is I'm small enough that the clubs in the area don't give me a hard time. I mean, I've only had one coach that ever really complained. Um, and that was because I was doing things differently than he was. And the coach you know, some of the parents are like, well, why do you do this? So, you know, why aren't you, you know, running the kids for, you know, like three miles before practice? And I'm like, well, I don't believe in any of that. And uh, he thought that that was me taking a shot at him. And I wasn't taking a shot at him. I was taking a shot of, you know, the methodologies that, you know, are very common out here. So, you know, but other than that one instance, you know, nobody's complained. I think if I got to like 200 kids, I think a lot of the local clubs, would start complaining and then you got to deal with the politics right now. I'm outside of all that. You know, I'm small enough that I just fly under the radar and nobody gives me a hard time. Where do you hold your sessions at? Is there a, like just a local park or is there a school that allows you to kind of use their facilities? So, so I, I, in, in not this time of year. So this time of year, I, I rent a, uh, some small facilities and you know, the, the facilities places, um, know what I do and know that, you know, I don't charge. So the, the rates are very reasonable. Um, and then in the, you know, once we get to the spring through the fall, so I would say, you know, close to 40 weeks out of the year, I'll, I'll work at like town facilities and school facilities that I've arranged that, you know, they, they don't charge us because they know we don't charge the, the families and stuff. What's the, uh, what's the kind of the soccer environment up in that area that you live? Is it like just super full of just clubs and players all over the place or kind of what's the makeup of like, I'm here in, you know, in Ohio, 
and we've got a pretty good solid base of, of players and such, but what is the environment, the, the playing culture, I guess, out that way? So within an hour drive of me, there are two MLS next clubs, three GAs and five, maybe no six ECNL clubs all within an hour drive. Wow. So the amount of kids that think they're elite players is, is quite a bit. (laughs) Is it's almost, it's, it's interesting with everything that you've said about the differences between overseas and here and player development and the, the focus and such almost you just pointing out the number of those elite quote unquote um, opportunities almost points to the issue because there's clearly not that many, to be honest, that would have to be considered elite um, that are in some of those academies. Yeah. So, so I have still contacts over in the European clubs and stuff. And I would say in the last six years, I've made two phone calls for kids that I thought, you know, was worth the European club looking at. So how many kids do I see? I see thousands every year. And I thought they were two that showed like really top end promise. Is there, is there, I guess now the question becomes like, so there's clearly kind of a cultural, I don't know if I call it a problem, but an obstacle is there is there a fix? Is there a way that we can do a better job of player development? You think here in the states? You know, I I think you you got to look at the premise of the question, right? I I don't think the gatekeepers of the system think there's a problem, right? I I, I just don't. Um, if you own an ECNL club or run an ECNL club, right? You have that badge. That's going to give you a pipeline of kids that come in. That's going to ring the cash register every year. What's the problem? Right? Because you're not, you're not getting paid on how many kids you send to pro leagues. You're getting paid on how many kids you get to walk in the door at 11 years old mm-hmm. and how many are willing to pay. You know, the, the prices out here are close to four grand a year, you know, plus tournaments, plus, 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 you know, so it's 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 a problem for people who look at the landscape differently. I'm not sure it's a problem for the people who are currently in the landscape. Yeah, because I was going to say, that's why I was really interested in if and when you have a club and clearly your mindset is a little bit different um, than what is now like the norm. And I was wondering what that would, that trickle effect of if you were to start pushing and saying hey we're going a different direction what that would look like in the landscape of like all of those academies around you and you start producing players that hey i'm going beyond like we're going big like bigger i want to be making more than two phone calls in the span of 20 years or whatever um and what that would look like and the power that maybe one person like you and one club could have on maybe the landscape of what's going on here in the state I, I think if you if you look at it, I'm not looking to be all things in the pyramid, right? So there's a place for the for your top end places here that I'm not looking to, you know, move, you know, push aside, right? I want I want to take your your 10 to 17 year old and make them ready for that next level. And if that level is an MLS academy or you know a, a top GA club or a top ECNL club or, you know, somewhere over in Europe, that, that, that's, that's my role. I want to get the kids ready for that. I don't want to supplement. I don't want to take over that, right? You know, I, I have a very specific part of that pyramid that I'm looking to target. And so for me, if I had, let's say, boys, right? Because the boys have the MLS next up. NWSL doesn't really have that at the moment. They, they basically come out of college. But I would love to be the place where, you know, and I'm in between Philadelphia Union and Red Bulls, where, you know, they come in and at 16 years old, they're decimating my team. You know, to me, that's, 
that's the, the, the pinnacle of success. You know, when the top end of the pyramid comes in, then it goes, that's where I want to recruit from. Or, you know, your top, you know, D1 organizations are saying, hey, look, I want those kids. To me, that's where I want to be. I don't want to be that competing with the MLS Next Academy or, you know, some of like the, you know, there are ECNL clubs on the girls' side that are doing a great job. I'm not looking to compete with them. I'm looking to feed them. I think that's such a, like a, uh, such a cool kind of idea. Cause I almost in my head was thinking like baseball where you almost have like the minor leagues or what have you. And it's, it's like a feeder system, um, type of thing. And I love the idea of like, look, when my players get to a point where they're good enough to go somewhere else bigger then I want them to go versus what I think happens a lot now is people just want to keep them all and to keep building and like, Oh, I'm going to keep that team together forever. Like, no, that's not like, I'm trying to get those kids um, to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. The other thing that I was wondering is how important, because I see this a little bit. Do you think, is it that our youth clubs um, become partners with clubs overseas? Is that more again of just like, Hey, look, look, we've got a badge and now it brings in more kids or is there something that could be, um, actually productive and useful for that. So, so for me, right. In, in, and I, and I'm in, I'm having like some beginning conversations. So I'm going to leave out who the players are, right. There is an overseas entity that I'm looking to bring into the fold, but I'm looking to bring them into the fold as a coaching methodology, not as a marketing, uh, partner. And the, and the reason for that is, you know, if you look at like the big clubs and, you know, the ones that, you know, did the Byron's, did this, did that, you know, basically those were, those were marketing arrangements. Those were uniform deals, right? Yep. There, you had the same coaches who were doing the same things. They just had nicer uniforms or different uniforms, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not really sure how that benefited the kids. So when we look at, when I look at like partnering with, with some of the European entities that I know, it's, it's all about making the organization better to help the kids and not so much the marketing side of it, which I think is where most of the effort is right now. The one thing too you brought up is conversations with parents. And I know from my experience, that's like one of the biggest things as a coach and a director of coaching and all this type of stuff is parental education. What has that experience been with you, especially with like this group that you're dealing with the supplementals and like how you're kind of a a different direction with how, what's that conversation been? Um, Especially because I know some parents just, they just don't get it sometimes. And what's some of the pushback and how have you dealt with maybe some of the like uncertainty? Yeah. So, so for me, it's been pretty, easy. I take a very different approach. Any parent can come have a conversation at any time. I'll explain why I do things. Um, and I'll have that conversation with you. Um, I also, any of my sessions or practices and stuff, you're more than willing to, you know, film it if you want, I don't care. Um, so it's completely open and listen, if I'm not your cup of tea, go down the block. I don't care. Right. I I'm not, I don't charge anything. So other than you taking one less headcount away from me, you know, I still have plenty of kids who, who, who want to come in. Like I won't, I won't run a practice with more than 22 kids with just myself. I just won't do it. Right. So I have kids that want to come into sessions who, because I limit the numbers can't, if you don't believe in what we're doing and I'm completely open about it, uh, go somewhere else. I, the one thing that's cool about it is like you said, there's no, they're not paying anything. So the expectation is like, I'm going to, I'm setting this up how I want to set it up. Here's how we're doing it. Here's the expectations. Um, and like you said, if you're bought in and you want to do it, let's rock and roll. You're more than welcome to go. And if you want to spend money on whatever session and you want to get like all the extra little uh, extra, whatever they call throw in, then do it. But I think it's really cool how you're just like, look, here's how it is and show up. Let's do some work. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and like I said, you know, I have people who leave absolutely who are like, you know, I, I'm a very positional play type of guy. I mean, those are the things I believe in. I don't do, you know, step overs and scissors and, and all that stuff. It's, it's just not how, how I teach. Now, if you're trying to do a scissor in, in one of our sessions and you don't do it right, yeah, I'll take you aside and I'll help you on that technique, but I'm never doing a step over session, right? That it, it, it doesn't happen. But, you know, there are, there are parents who are out there saying, well, you know, I went to coach X, Y, and Z, and they had ladders, and they had parachutes, and they had us running through cones and stuff. And, you know, my 11-year-old really needs to get physically fit. I'm like, well, you know, don't take them to McDonald's after practice, and that'll do just as much. You know, it's, it's just, if that's what you believe in, you know, if you believe in that the problem with the 11-year-old soccer players, they're not fit enough, then I'm not your guy. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the one thing too, that I love about it is, um, like you just, even that comment you just made was like, I'm here with the goal of, of developing your player. So if, if what I'm doing doesn't fit, then I think you have options. And I love the idea of like, it's not just, I think sometimes coaches get so caught up in like my ways, the right way or the best way, like you said, it's got to be fit the player as much as it fits um, what you're doing with them. What has been the experience because you have all this kind of knowledge and, and, and what have you, what's the experience been like when you had to take that step back as a coach with your, with your daughter and your son playing, what's that like being on the other side, being a fan uh, getting in the car after games, all that type of stuff. What's that been? It's, it's a lot of tongue biting, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, so so I, I, I'll, I'll tell you a story. So my son moved to a club uh, several years ago. It's probably five or six years ago now. And he had a young coach. And coach is maybe 23 years old and stuff, you know, probably an e-licensed coach or whatever. And I think he was taking his D class and he, this is when U S soccer for the real youth was in that play practice play, mm-hmm. you know, that was their, their big push. And I watched it and he basically set up like some small sided games, but never said a word, you know, basically these were, what was he at the time? 10 years old ish, give or take. And he would go out there. And so after the, third time of him doing this, I, I just pulled him aside. And I said, you know, explain to me, what, do you, what are you trying to get here? He goes, well, you don't understand. And I was like, okay. And, and, and remember, you know, now I'm, I'm dad. Yep. Right. V- very different. I was like, well, he goes, this is, this is the newest thing with us soccer and stuff. And then he went online and like made comments about how, you know, parents just don't understand. And somebody actually had the audacity to ask him why he was doing what he was doing. And then I, I sent him a, a nice little email. I said, hey, you may wanna you know, look me up before you, you know, make comments like that because I understand what play practice play is. I've, I've done all that stuff. Um, I just don't think you were doing it well. And so I was questioning what you were doing at the time and you know, that was probably one of the few times I've ever gone to a coach and been like, really? Um, my daughter has a coach now who believes in unopposed passing patterns. I couldn't be more diametrically opposed to that. And we know it. But, you know, he brings lots of other things good to the thing. I think he's a great guy. And my daughter learns a lot from him. So I keep my mouth shut on the unopposed passing patterns. But if you ask them, how I thought about unimposed passing pattern. He knows exactly where I stand on it, but you know, it's, you know, different things for different folks and you can learn different things. And, you know, just because I have a methodological difference with somebody doesn't mean they're a bad coach. It means I believe in a, in a, in a different way. You know, there are things that, you know, coaches do out there that they do much better than I, that's fine. I don't have to agree with everything you do. Just do it well the one thing I was going to ask too, with your daughter's coach with the unopposed passing and stuff, is he more open to the conversation with you? Like the give and take, whereas it's like, no, I don't know if he's open. I've never tried to engage in it. 
So is that based on your previous experience with this other coach that maybe if I bring it up, I, it just wasn't taken openly or because for me, the more things that we conversate on Twitter that we have in these conversations, like we're having now, I feel like the more you get to hear other sides of things. Um, I'm a big, I mean, that's why we got the pie is the chat about things. And I just wonder sometimes if we're missing out on those opportunities because both sides could learn something from the other if you actually had a open discourse. Yeah, I, I think that's where, you know, I crossed the line between being somebody who's also coached for many years and have done so at some fairly high levels and the parent. Mm-hmm. In, in the situation with my kids, I'm parent, right? And I have to be really cognizant of that um some some of the other parents like know my background and stuff so if you ever see me on the side i'm off on my own right i don't want to talk to people you know because sometimes i'll you know just utter something that i don't want other people to hear (laughs) Um, and i don't engage in conversations a lot with parents i do you know one of the things i do on the side is there's one of the soccer agencies that i work with that help kids get into college and again i do it completely free right i donate every bit of what they give me back to the kids Right. So it's, it's not about, you know, making money and trust me, I'm sure they have their issues with me because I I give way too much away. You know, some kid, you know, they're like, Oh, we could sign that kid up. I'm like, why do you sign that kid up? The kid needs, you know, a half an hour of a conversation and they can be on their little merry way. But so I'm not a good employee in that sense. Um, But they, you know, they, they give me a way to, you know, help kids, you know, in, in that journey as well. And so, you know, depending upon the hat that I'm wearing, there are lines that I don't cross, right? And I'm not there to make this coach's life more difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure if he ever wanted to have, he knows that if he ever wanted to have a coffee and talk theory with me, you know, I'd drive to his house, you know, as soon as we got off the call. Um, but, you know, he believes what he believes and that's fine. Um, we can all have different beliefs. There are things that he believes in that are holes in my own child's game because I don't believe in them. That's, that's also fine. Um, so that, that, that's the parent hat, you know, I, I think as a, as a parent who's also coached at a high level, you have to understand when to wear what and what lines not to cross. And sometimes I do it well and sometimes I don't, but I try to do my best. I think it's really cool. It's almost like a little self-awareness of, knowing like you said where the line is at and i the the idea of even separating yourself from the other parents and like kind of just being off on your own um so your kids can just experience it learn from it um and then grow the other thing that is been kind of constant throughout is the idea of doing stuff for free or giving making an impact without any expectation of getting anything where did that, where did that come from? Like, where has this kind of like idea of I'm going to do this, but I, I'm doing it for free. I'm here for the players, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I, I, I don't want it to make it sound like I don't get anything out of it. What I don't get out of it is money. There's, there's a big difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Like there, there is very few things in my life that bring me more joy than teaching somebody something on a, on a soccer field. And have that kid have that eureka moment. I mean, I could ride that for weeks. You know, um, I've had kids that I've helped get into colleges who wrote me a note. You know, I'm cloud nine. I, you know, to me, that's what makes my life full. I don't need the money. You know, I, like I said, I'm, I'm very fortunate in the fact that I don't, I don't need the money. Like, I'm retired. I'm 54 years old. You know, I have everything I could possibly want. I have everything my kids could possibly want. Um, So I feel as a human being on this planet, you know, being that all my needs are met in that area, right? In the monetary stuff that, you know, let me, let me do what I can to, to help others who, who may not have, you know, gotten the fortune opportunities that I have. When I was, when I was trying to get into coaching, I called people at some of the largest academies in the world who helped me get European coaching license. Didn't have to do it. 
didn't get anything for it, right? They didn't say, hey, you know, write me a check for $10,000 and I'll help you get UA for B. No, you know, they did it because, hey, here was somebody who wanted to do something. It, you know, they just wanted to help the community. And, I, and because there's been many instances in my life where that's happened, you know, I feel, you know, as a member of society, it's, it's my responsibility to give back where I can. I was going to ask too, because you were talking about some of the impacts that have occurred with you. Is there a, a, like a mentor or someone that you look back and go, that was someone that kind of put me on this kind of coaching journey or where you're at now? So I, I'm, I'm not so quite sure there's a single mentor. I would say that there's numerous people that have affected my path. And, you know, there, there were people at the, at the IACS Academy when I went there who took time and, and stuff and sat with me and, and told me about what they were doing and why they were doing it and what their methods were. And, and, they, and I basically bought them dinner, right? I would say, come on, I'll, I'll, I'll buy you some dinner, but I want to pick your brain for an hour and a half, you know? And, and so there was a lot of that, you know, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet Todd Bean, you know, probably five, six years ago now. And he's been, you know, great with, with sharing his knowledge and, and, and stuff with me again, you know, I'm fortunate that, you know, on a whim, I could, I could hop on a plane and go to Spain and, you know, sit with him for, for, for a week. If I want, he's open to it. Um, but I, I also understand that I, I have the ability to do things that most don't. And because of that, I feel it's my obligation to give back. The thing that I, I love is one, you seem like you're very, like a very curious, like always learning. Um, the fact that you would say, hey, let's sit down for an hour and a half and let's just talk shop. Um, even back when you were younger, I think is really cool. Is that something, even as a kid, as you were growing up, were you always kind of a curious thing? Um, and the idea of helping others, was that something even as a, like a youth, when you were going through high school and stuff, were you always kind of a, one of those that wanted to make impact or is this something that's kind of come about just from your experience um, growing up? So uh, I, I think it's something that's kind of evolved. You know, when, when, when I was younger, you know, and you'd get into the rat race and, you know, at first you wanted, you know, enough, enough money so you can move out of mom and dad's house. Right. And then you wanted, you know, enough money to buy your family a nice house. And then you wanted to move into the, the bigger house and, you know, the better schools or, or, or whatever it is. But there it came a time that those things became more superficial and less part of who I am. And so I, I was looking for things that filled the other holes in me as a human being. And so it kind of evolved into like, once I had all that stuff, now what do I do? And so, like I said, I have this, this one boy, he's, I don't know, 13-ish. You know, and he just lights up when he's able to prep his body early enough. Like when he's able to read a play that's two passes away and he gets it right, the kid's eyes just light up. And, you know, I go, I go home and nothing else really matters. And to me, that's, that's just where I am now. You started at when we talking about your wife saying, hey, we've got to make you have to make a decision. Um, what has she been in terms of, as your support with all of these things that, you know, like doing the supplemental, the possibility of maybe doing, getting your own club and stuff, where has she fit within this equation? So, you know, we, we have this conversation often. So she's incredibly understanding that I'm an obsessive person by nature. <laughs> um, and it hasn't changed in 23 years. It's, I don't think it's going to. And she's very accepting of that. And I, I think she, she kind of looks at it like, 
you know, I don't drink, so I'm not going out to the bars. You know, I'm not running around doing this or doing that. You know, this is, this is my outlet. And as far as all the outlets that are out there, this one's not so bad. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes she has to, you know, crack the whip and get me back in line. But as a general statement, I think she looks at as, as all the things he could be out there doing. This isn't too bad. I mean, we have plenty of friends, you know, who are three, four times out there on a golf course, four hours a shot. I'm on a soccer field. What's the- yeah, I think I, it's been really, really uh, refreshing to kind of hear little stories and anecdotals like that about the the spouse or the other person that's part of the whole the makeup and it's really cool to hear kind of that understanding of like this is who you are and like you said you're making a really positive impact and so why to hear that she's like I'd rather have him doing that versus like you said too many bad opportunity options um out there uh that could be taken away one of the things I wanted to do too is um this has been awesome and I want to make sure people have an opportunity to connect and, and possibly follow along and see maybe where, you know, maybe this cl- the club thing opens up or to kind of see what happens with some of the supplemental, like some of the players in that mix. So what are some ways that people can connect with you? So probably the easiest way to me is, is, is my Twitter account. I spend way too much time on there. Mm-hmm. You can tell I'm retired. <laughs> um, so, so, so that's, that's probably the, the easiest way. Like I said, I don't I don't use a, a club website or anything because that's all by uh, by word of mouth. But you know, somebody shoots me uh, a DM there. You know, it's mine are open. Um, I'll, I'll give you my email, my phone number. Heck, you want to come over for dinner? That's fine. I think the cool thing too is like it sounds like even if you were like, hey, I'm going to be in the area, and my kid, can he come out for like just catch a session? And from what I've heard, you'd be like, yeah, come on out, let's do this. Yeah, never turn a kid away. Um, yeah, let's rock and roll, which I think is so refreshing. Um, is like, look, I'm here. I'm going to be there from you know time whatever you know six to eight whatever. We're going to be rocking and rolling. So if your kid wants to come, uh, and like you said, I keep it down to my 22 or whatever it is, and we and, and we do it. So I've absolutely loved this chat, uh, Steve. I appreciate you hopping on with me. Yeah, I appreciate Karen. Uh, all the success in the future. Love what you're doing. Thank you. I'm going to shut this thing down. This is Kieran with Coach's Corner Chats with Steve Rollins, and I'm out. Peace. The beanie of choice for this episode was a Columbia beanie. Go to Columbia.com and get you one. Thanks for listening to the podcast. This is Kieran, and I'm out. Peace.